Today, I'm joined in conversation by Paula Brandt. Paula has spent 30 years developing programs that serve people experiencing mental illness and substance use issues. She has worked in a variety of settings that include case management, community support, intensive residential and outpatient treatment, and the Anoka Metro Regional Treatment Center. She is the founder of Minnesota Alternatives, which was acquired by Mental Health Resources in 2018. Paula received her master's degree from Boston University in psychiatric rehabilitation counseling and is a licensed social worker and certified co-occurring disordered professional diplomat. Paula is currently self-employed. Paula, thank you so much for joining me today in this conversation. Um, And I just want to start today by introducing people to the topic of harm reduction. So everyone is likely familiar with the abstinence model of addiction recovery, which emphasizes total abstinence from any substances as a measure of successful treatment. Many might not know that there's an alternative paradigm called harm reduction. Can you explain harm reduction to listeners who may be unfamiliar with the topic? Sure. Harm reduction actually has its roots in public health. It was an approach that responded to the HIV AIDS um, concerns and wanted to help reduce the risk of, um, you know, the harmful effects of, of infection and, and um, involve strategies like, you know, needle exchanges, um, safe uh, injection practices, and um, ways to try to um, help keep people alive or reduce the risk of, of serious harm to themselves or others. There are lots of examples of harm reduction practices that exist through, you know, all aspects of life, like, you know, wearing motorcycle helmets and seatbelts. When it comes to substance use issues, I think uh, harm reduction for a lot of providers, generally, you know, people think about things like using methadone or buprenorphine, some type of a medication that still kind of activates the same receptors that their substance use, um, their drug of choice activates with the idea that you're regulating dosages, you're helping the person um, maintain some stability, um, kind of helping the nervous system stay regulated, which allows them to perform their job functions, be a healthy member of their family, um, stay out of legal trouble and whatnot. So a lot of people associate harm reduction with, in the substance use um, disorder world related to the, the medications for treating opioid or heroin addiction. However, when I think of harm reduction, I really think of it as person-centered practices. Um, if you are practicing from a person-centered perspective, which means you know, the heart of motivational interviewing, it means that the person's recovery vision, whatever that means to them, is really the essence of where everything begins. Because if you aren't engaging people and honoring and understanding their vision, you know, their goals, what does recovery mean to them, then your practices are, you know, your ideas, your interventions are being imposed on them as opposed to kind of uh, created in partnership with them. So when I think of harm reduction, I really think of person-centered practices, you know, with the spirit of motivational interviewing and really cultivating, you know, that intrinsic motivation that helps inspire change in people. And I know harm reduction can have uh, sometimes negative associations with it. And so I, I really just want people to think harm reduction equates to person-centered practices. Where do you think the um, negative connotations have come from? I think that if we look back kind of in the history of um, people who, you know, who struggle with substance use issues, 
there's been um, in our perceptions a lot of judgment, perhaps morality, ideas that these are behaviors that are somehow sinful, um, that we, you know, there are some of the pillars of, of, of AA even talk about defects in character. And um, and again, I, I just want to maybe put a disclaimer out there that I'm not um, opposed to a, an abstinence-based intervention or a 12-step modality for people that find that helpful. Um, I really believe it's important that as providers, our job is to work with folks to help them understand whatever works and that there are multiple pathways to recovery. So whatever works is what we want to support. But there's definitely a history of, of, of kind of a, a, a maybe a punitive, um, um, this idea of that there's defects in character, there's moral problems with, with substance use and, you know, addiction. Um, and so I think when we start to think about things like harm reduction or helping people find a pathway that works for them, it, you know, it's really different than a, 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 the historical approach to how we've, we've worked with substance use. And that's been this abstinence-based, you know, model where the only pathway to recovery is abstinence. And a lot of the, you know, the pillars of our system are based on, on that, on that paradigm. So when we start to talk about person-centered or harm reduction practices, there's this there's a lot of assumption that somehow we're enabling or that we're letting people use or that we're um, taking, you know, a simple path out when in reality, in my experience as a treatment provider, doing person-centered practices is a lot more complicated and involves a lot more flexibility and risk and, and you know, individualized approaches than kind of one size fits all. Here's our program. You fit in this box. You do everything that you're supposed to do as long as you don't cause too much trouble. We're going to give you your little certificate and send you on your way. Well, this is a nice segue into my next question, which is just, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your work uh, creating and founding Minnesota Alternatives and um, talk to you a little bit about your experience using harm reduction with clients in the field. I started working in the mental health field back in the in the early 1980s, and after working for many decades as a mental health professional, I had multiple experiences of working with people, as you can imagine, because mental health and substance use disorders oftentimes are integrated, uh, that that suffered from both from both um, challenges and. Unfortunately, what I was what I was ex- observing or experiencing with people is that they were having this sense of of being a failure of of going through you know conventional treatment programs multiple times, 10, 12, 14, 17 times, and kind of getting the same interventions over and over and getting these messages that they're failures. They talked about experiences where they would, you know, go into programs and there would be all these people and they would just be talked at as opposed to being talked with, that they would be given prepackaged treatment plans that weren't reflective of the things that they actually felt were important to work on. They felt that it was kind of all this kind of a shell game, that they would be in these groups and they would say all these things that they're supposed to say for fear that if they were authentic or honest about their experiences, that they would somehow be punished or perhaps even kicked out. And they would go out on break and they would have this whole other reality with their peers. And I thought, this is the, this is the treatment model that we're using to supposedly help people recover from complex substance use and mental health. And these programs also weren't addressing their mental health issues. There was sig- oftentimes significant underlying 
or co-occurring um, anxiety or um, depressive disorders or uh, trauma history, um, and that none of the uh, kind of motives that actually were contributing to the to the use um, were being identified or addressed. So that is what inspired me then in 2009 to kind of move from the mental health profession and open up Minnesota Alternatives as a substance outpatient substance use disorder program, focusing on really treating the person as a whole, um, understanding them, their struggles, their challenges, their aspirations, their dreams, mm-hmm. and, and, and really um, giving them the opportunity to, to heal in whatever way they need to heal. You mentioned that oftentimes mental illness and uh, substance use disorder can co-occur. For listeners who may not uh, specialize in addiction recovery, but who will likely work with folks who have co-occurring disorders, can you talk a little bit about the experiences of folks who might be struggling with addiction problems? What are they going through mentally, emotionally, physically? A lot. Um, I think if you think just really basically about our nervous system, you know, our nervous system in, uh, includes our brain and um, our spinal column and all the nerves that that go off of of that of the of those those structures. So it's a very very involved system, the most complex system in our body, and our brain is you know where we process all the information and all our experiences, and we kind of respond accordingly and help decide what we're going to do in response to certain experiences or stimuli. So. The brain, our brain has, you know, kind of three primary areas. We have the back of the brain, which includes the brain stem and the little baby brain that sits in the back, which is very, you know, primitive primal functions. Then we have our midbrain, which is where we have a lot of our emotional processing that happens, our memory, our fight or flight response, our reward circuitry. And so um, that's kind of the emotion part of the brain, the midbrain, size of an apricot sits in the center. And then we have our cerebral cortex, which is the outer lying, the big part of our brain, which you know makes human beings so unique because we have these big brains. But the front of the cerebral cortex, the prefrontal cortex, this what sits right behind our forehead, is where we do all our executive um, decision making, where we are able to, you know, think things through and kind of weigh the pros and cons and really look at the big picture and kind of think about the future. So folks that are actively struggling with whether it's PTSD um, or other mental health issues or severe substance use issues or any kind of compulsive behavior that involves a lot of activation of the reward circuitry, their midbrains are where most of their decision-making is kind of happening from. So there's a, a, a either a fight-or-flight response or an impulsive response or, or I want it, I want it now, I need to feel good now. So the midbrain really is kind of the primary center from which people are functioning. So what we try to do is, you know, teach people to learn how to, you know, engage some basic mindfulness practices and take a deep breath and learn about their brain and their nervous system and learn how to self-regulate, learn how to calm down their their kind of their sense of who they are and their experience in that moment, which then allows them to think and find that just space where they can actually pause and try to think things through. And the more that and just this basic understanding that the more they they practice thinking long term, even for a moment, whenever they're experiencing a trigger, that develops neural connections between the midbrain and the prefrontal cortex, because where we focus our attention defines us neurologically. So we teach them about building neural pathways between their midbrain and their prefrontal cortex, because someone with severe substance use disorder, 
those connections may not be present or they may be significantly weakened for lack of use or perhaps lack of even initial development. So our job is to help them train their brains to develop strong connections to their prefrontal cortex and a brain that can't access their prefrontal cortex, that can't see things long term, that can't think beyond their emotions and all the things like you know, family, vocation, meaningful activity get pruned away because the midbrain is kind of what's running the show. That is a brain that is in a state of disease. And so our job is to teach people basic practices that help them learn how to think greater than how they feel. So of course, someone that's operating from the midbrain and all the other things in life that are meaningful for most of us get pruned away. You can mm -hmm. imagine what a life looks like. Yeah. Um, and I think thinking about that kind of life and then thinking about abruptly stopping the use of uh, a great source of pleasure um, would be incredibly challenging. And I think you mentioned earlier that um, you experienced working with clients who had been through a typical sort of recovery model and had done it maybe 11, 12 times. For the folks who went through um, more traditional sort of abstinence model um, treatment and were unsuccessful and they come to you for a harm reduction model. Um, what does their course to success look like? Of course, everybody's path to success is unique mm -hmm. and that's part of what, you know, we really need to recognize, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, someone were to ask me what are kind of the key ingredients or the most, you know, prevalent you know, indicators that you would see that would increase a person's chance of success. I would say that um, there's a sense of, of willingness, that they're, they're open to the idea of change, and, and there's also some sense of hope that change mm -hmm. is possible. And so for folks that don't have willingness or hope, it's a very, that's a very difficult, you know, it's a very difficult prognosis that's the that's where you have to begin. Mm -hmm. And so for our folks that are out there that that are out there kind of living a, a nomadic existence that that don't have any any anchors, any people that they can count on to support them that don't have necessarily anything that gives their life a sense of meaning or purpose, our priority, the first priority is we must engage them. We must we must really focus on relationship building and and human to human connection, um, this concept of attachment theory, you know, and help them understand that perhaps through the, the you know, the, the connection or the a relationship with a trusted other, perhaps the, the universe is a friendly place. And perhaps there's a chance that life could get better for me. So it's through that idea of, of meaningful connection and instilling hope that creates a sense of willingness. And so that's the first place that we need to begin. And that can take a long time for someone that's been, for whatever reason, um, disconnected or mistrustful or feels, you know, again, that the universe is a hostile place. It, it's going to take a while for them to feel comfortable and safe. And that could be years. And that could be the focus for a long time. So, you you know, again, depending upon where people are, are starting their kind of journey, uh, how we respond is going to be very individualized. Uh, we have folks that might be in the program for four years, where others might be in and out in, you know, 60 days, depending again upon where they are when they come in and what they need to do. But in general, 
the criteria that we use for success is that uh, the person has made progress on the things that they wanted to progress on, that they've learned some key coping skills related to self-regulation that we teach, and that they feel an internal sense of readiness. That's the criteria for completion. I'm realizing within this conversation, even in my last question, I'm sort of wanting to um, like standardize and streamline a path for everybody, which is the antithesis of being person-centered. Are there strategies for workers uh, who for many years have understood recovery to equal sobriety um, to address the implicit bias that there's only one way to recover? Well, it's curious because we talk about that the best likelihood to help somebody go through a process of change is a sense of willingness. And so as a social worker, you know, what, how do I, how do I interact with people that I work with? Am I willing to take the time to understand where they're coming from? And so I think the best thing we can do as social workers is slow down and focus less on our agenda and emphasize engagement. Mm -hmm. And some people are maybe very easy to engage with, and that may happen quickly. And But once that engagement is established, then you're in a much more effective position to um, engage in a process of, of change and discovery and education and, and you know, movement toward uh, recovery. So that's number one always is connect and engage. And once you're engaged, then you can start to talk about educational needs or, you know, helping them understand, you know, the consequences of the choices they're making or, or, you know, again, oftentimes the best we can do is help ensure that people are making informed decisions. So we give them solid information. We recognize that they still ultimately have the locus of control, providing they're not putting themselves or other at risk of serious harm. And then lay that out and help them understand that these are options. This is, these are consequences. And so again, informed decision-making, absolutely critical, solid education. And then the other thing we can do is again, once we've established a good connection with folks is we can offer them accountability partnerships. So this is an account of, this is not the accountability, like a probation officer that involves, you know, heavy hammers. This is accountability like a coach or like a teacher or, you know, a mentor. So mm-hmm. that involves short-term goal planning, you know, measurable steps that people can take, take. And then you as their coach or accountability partner help keep track of those, those steps or those action steps. And you help them, you know, measure them and you write them down and you put them on the, help them put them on the refrigerator because when we measure a health behavior, it tends to change. And we take notes so that next time we see them, we know what it is that they've agreed to work on and we help support that through follow-up and showing interest and, you know, again, saying, I'm invested, I care, I want to help. So those are things, very practical things that we can do that can be extremely effective in helping people make change. Thank you for that. Um, so I want to circle back. Uh, uh, we talked earlier about how frequently substance use disorder um, co-occurs with other disorders like PTSD, anxiety, depression. Um can you talk about that intersection and why co-occurrence is so common? Again, if you think about mental health illness, mental illnesses or mental health challenges or substance use issues, we're talking about 
about the nervous system and we're talking about how our brain processes information and we're talking about the neurochemicals that are, are either present naturally or maybe deficient naturally or we're talking about chemicals that we add to our nervous system through taking medications or using drugs. So the it's all about kind of how our, our, our brains and our nervous system are responding. And we know that for many mental illnesses, there are um, problems with uh, neurochemicals that may not be functioning properly, or there may be imbalances. And that we know with severe substance use disorder, we are absolutely, you know, we're absolutely inundating and flooding some of our receptors with chemicals that are, you know, um, beyond kind of our, our neuroadaptation abilities causing then these, these states of illness. So, so it's all, it's all about helping a person engage in a process of, of learning skills to self-regulate so that they can do the best they can with the technology they have mm-hmm. available to them through their nervous system. And then also engaging, you know, with psychopharmacological support to figure out if medications are an important part of this formula so that the person has this, you know, optimal opportunity to, to have solid brain processing. Um, the other thing is that when people are activated, whether that's because they're anxious or they've been traumatized or whatever is happening for them, learning is very difficult. When, when we're mm-hmm. stressed and we're anxious and, you know, we're activated, it's difficult for us to listen it's difficult for us to concentrate. It's difficult for us to retain information. So the first thing, again, providers need to do is we need to help create a sense of ease. People mm-hmm. need to feel at ease and welcome and safe because that then lays the groundwork for learning. For the and, learning. you know, again, a lot of these programs that, that people walk into, they're harsh, they're stressful. They're, there's really nothing about them that helps a the person feel comfortable. And mm-hmm. that's the first priority, warm lights, warm rooms, low key, you know, settings, welcoming staff, kindness, kindness, kindness. That's the beginning of, of recovery. I, I had a client say to me once after her first couple days, she said, wow, I actually feel like I could heal here uh-huh. instead, instead of being punished. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I thought, well, that's fabulous. And that's tragic. It's yeah. tragic. So often mental illnesses are siloed from substance use disorder. And I think there's often this um, this idea that you have to treat one before you treat the other. And I'm wondering if you can speak to, um, it sounds like in a very person-centered approach to substance use treatment, you're also addressing some mental uh, health concerns as well. And I'm wondering if that is a something that's really intentional about the harm reduction model, or if that is just a an additional benefit to treating the whole person rather than just their disorder. Uh, yes, it absolutely is intentional. Uh, again, if you're working with a person from a, a person-centered perspective, it does require that you understand the whole person. And so it's, it's mind, body, and spirit. And um, a common service that people may offer when they say they do co-occurring treatment is that they educate about mental illness. And education is can be helpful, but it's not treatment. And so what is happening for the person? Do are you offering, you know, trauma therapy if the person is experiencing you know a history of trauma? 
Are you bringing the family in to look at, you know, the relationships that may be a part of what's happening? You know, are we assessing the environments that people are in? Because environmental factors are, 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 are huge in terms of capacity for, for well-being. Are they, do they have access to, you know, solid psychiatric assistance to, you know, it's, there's, there's so many ways that we need to be, to be effectively caring for the person, um, you know, and again, medications that, that might involve some activation of the neural receptors that, that their substance use have been, you know, if, if I've been using a stimulant, say, for example, for years, and I'm expected to suddenly just stop using the stimulant and then engage in treatment and think that my brain's going to work and that I'm mm. you know, going to be able to function is really a setup. And so we need to figure out how to help that person engage and learn. And that can mean that perhaps we continue, you know, to support some, some stimulant um, and slowly, I mean, anything that you stop suddenly, there's going to be a, there's going to be a significant withdrawal period. And, and for many of our folks, the reason they're using those substances in the first place is because there is some underlying issue that 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 drug or that medication is 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 indicated. There's lots of you know tr uh, untreated ADHD where people end up on meth methamphetamines, and we mm -hmm. realize that if we actually give them a, a regulated dose of a stimulant, they function well. And but you know in a con in a conventional program, they've got a methamphetamine disorder, and you're going to choose to prescribe a stimulant. That would be like oh my gosh, you know. Yeah. That's you're causing harm when in fact you're actually helping the person stabilize and engage and get well. Yeah, and I think switching the paradigm from causing harm to thinking more in terms of harm reduction is really useful um, to engage people where they're at with their level of motivation. Um, so for human service workers who want to shift the cultural dialogue to be more inclusive. And I know that as time goes on, harm reduction becomes more popular modality. Um, is there something that human service workers can do to help shift that cultural dialogue about harm reduction to support all clients um, where they're at in their recovery? Get some get some current training on um, motivational interviewing, on mm -hmm. attachment theory, on um, understanding trauma and how trauma works, and how trauma therapies actually work to help people resolve some of that you know kind of state of activation that they they often you know live in. So I think that there's first be willing to consider that um, there are other ways and that there are multiple pathways, and and recognizing that. If you want to be considered a, you know, uh, a practitioner that's using best practices, you know, science-informed, um, um, evidence-based, person-centered care um, that recognizes that people are in various kind of stages of change regarding their 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 willingness or ability to to move forward in their recovery goals is best practice. So if you're operating from a paradigm mm -hmm. of you know, disease only, 12-step abstinence is the only path, you're outdated. I mean, you are, you are really, not only mm -hmm. are you outdated, you know, I think I would argue that in many cases you're causing harm. So I think it's absolutely critical if we're going to be, you know, the best that we can be, we need to work with people from a science-informed, person-centered and, you know, co-occurring um, approach. And other, other than that, we're just, you know, we're, 
we're, we're doing something to people that, you know, one, may not be helpful, but two, absolutely could be harmful. If you're able to share um, a harm reduction success story, is there one that stands out for you as especially meaningful? There's a lot of them that stand out. Um, <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. In 30 it's, it's years really, of work. Yeah, right, right. It's really, it's really, you know, it's an honor to be with people in, in their process of change. We have found that over the, you know, the course of, of, of at least the, the 10 years that Minnesota Alternatives has been gathering information and data, which it continues to do, is that um, a lot of people, the majority, um, enter treatment with the idea or hope that they can figure out how to use moderately or safely. I think that, you know, most people would prefer to be able to find a way to still use their substance without all the consequences. And, um, and for some people, that's absolutely possible. Um, but for many people, it's not. And that they go through this process of discovery. Uh, and it, again, it gets to be their process. And it needs to be their process. Because if you really want to um, ensure long-term sustained change, it needs to come from themselves, not something that's imposed on somebody. Nobody likes to be coerced. So people kind of go through the process of, of discovery. And it, over time, we have found that about of all the people that successfully complete the program, about half of them end up on a path of abstinence and the other half are still actively using. Now, they may not be using their, their primary substance, but they may be using other things. So perhaps if heroin was their primary problem, they may still be smoking pot or drinking. But point being is it's kind of about a 50-50 split. We then find out that if we contact people a year later, it's still about a 50-50 split. Half the people are still using something and the other people are practicing abstinence. But the vast majority, well over 90%, are doing well. They're reporting, you know, solid quality of life, no problems as a result of their substance use, no more needs for treatment or mental health or hospitalization. So um, um, substance use treatment or any kind of hospitalization, they certainly may be engaged in ongoing mental health services like a therapist or um, seeing a psychiatrist. But um, so, and, you know, an example of a, maybe a, a, you know, a story that comes to my mind is a, this is a nurse. She uh, was prescribed, she had some anxiety um, and depressive challenges. She was you know, using um, and, and problems with sleep. So she was being prescribed a sleep aid and an anti-anxiety medication. Uh, things escalated in her life. She started to have some severe relationship challenges. She got into kind of an abusive relationship. Her uh, drinking she was a social drinker. Her drinking started to increase. Um, she started to misuse her medications. And, you know, before long, she was drinking in the morning, um, taking, you know, again, pills kind of not as prescribed and got pretty serious. Um, she ended up going through uh, a medical withdrawal process and then uh, got involved in some uh, mental health therapy and uh, was able to Put, put the alcohol aside and then got her, her medications regulated again, did very well uh, for, for um, you know, sustained period of time and then started adding uh, alcohol again uh, and drinking in a social way um, and has done that successfully for a very long time. Although I just recently actually heard from her and I found out that there was a significant trauma that happened in her life and she realized that her alcohol Used was starting to increase, and she was starting to use it kind of more in a, in, a, in a coping kind of problematic way. She was still stable with her other medications, um, but she kind of had an epiphany and then 
realized, nope, I, I need to not be drinking. So she stopped drinking and has now not been drinking for, I think, about 45 days and, you know, isn't saying she's not going to drink again, but she realizes that right now she shouldn't be drinking. So she's kind of put the drinking aside. But that's a that's an example, you know, and, and again, mm-hmm. in a conventional program, they would have said any return to a sleep aid or a, an anti-anxiety medication would be, you know, unacceptable because those were those were problems at some point in her life but they really are essential to her well-being and alcohol is kind of something that kind of comes in and out of her life but she's successful she's working full-time in a medical career um, stable in her relationships and has lots of insight yeah it sounds like that insight is key in sort of managing um, managing the experience with substances well I think insight's key with managing a lot of things <laughs> It's just, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think we, I don't want to overemphasize substances because it's not just substances that can get us into trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, any, any behavior that is, you know, rewarding and kind of reinforcing and draws us away from the things that, that might, you know, give our lives balance um, or that, you know, kind of activate that, that reward circuitry are, can be, can be trouble can be yeah. trouble, whether that's the internet, you know, or mm-hmm. um, um, food or, you know, gambling. So it's, it's not always just about substances that we ingest. Paula, we're winding down here in terms of questions. Are there any um, last pearls of wisdom that you can share? People listening to this podcast are probably coming from all um, walks of life, all professional backgrounds in human services. Um, any pearls of wisdom to leave us with today? Uh, sure. Happy to, to share just a few closing thoughts. I guess, again, just really want to um, acknowledge all the hard work that people will or are doing to support others. And thank you for that, because um, it's, it's, it can be incredibly rewarding to do uh, the work that that we're doing. Um, also, just want to remind you to to take care of yourselves because when you practice good self care and and know that you know you can't always fix everybody, you do the best you can. That's all you can do. That can change from moment to moment or day to day. So just recognize that that you're doing your best, and then you kind of got to let got to let go. Um, I would also really want to emphasize the the opportunities that we have with early intervention and prevention. That if we try to teach parents about how important attachment, secure attachment is for their kids, helping their kids um, understand that they're safe and secure and attuned, that we attune to them and do the best we can with, with their early childhood development to help kind of lay lay down a solid foundation for their nervous system so that there's way less chance that as they age that they're going to need to uh, you know use substances to help try to regulate their nervous system. So really understand the power of, of early childhood attachment and attunement. And I am concerned that as we continue to be kind of hijacked by our, our devices, that, that that's going to be something that's going to be missing uh, for a lot of children. And, um, and the last thing is, is just recognize that change is, is long-term, ongoing. We're always, all of us are on, on a journey. And that while we may not always get it right, that better is better. Thank you so much, Paula. This has been wonderful talking to you and a total honor. Um, Thank you for joining us today. You bet. Thanks for having me. This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.